All right. So some of our greatest missional opportunities are not just outside of our communities, but within our families. Many of us in this room who are professing to be Christians can all identify that one family member or friend who's lost and you have a burden for, right? He or she may be a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a distant cousin, a grandparent, or just somebody you're really close with. And so just for the sake of tonight and the topic that we're going to be praying through or trying to answer, uh, think of one person that God has laid in your heart, whether that's familial connection or a friend, a neighbor, something like that, and identify the person. Hopefully you have somebody by name. Um, for me, it's, it's our neighbor. And one thing that I've seen the past couple of months is that the Lord has opened up a door for us to have a relationship. Um, he loves pizza. He loves fancy baseball. Uh, and he loves sports. And for some reason, he keeps reaching out. He keeps asking questions. He knows what I do for a living. Um, he's an atheist by profession. But our conversation and our discussion, they still revolve around things of life and sometimes even of faith. And he's not been offended just yet. And so my challenge to you is think of this one person, right? What we want to focus on tonight is a topic that's going to be very personal to you. It's personal to me. But I hope it will challenge you in your prayer life because I think we probably can do a better job of this, right? So our, our question tonight is this, how to pray for a family member or loved one who's not a believer? Um, we all can identify with this. That there's somebody within your family right now that you have a deep burden for because what? They don't know the Lord, and that's an issue, Right? Some of us may lose sleep at night over this. Some of you guys have probably been praying for this particular individual for, what, decades. Um, so as we approach this topic tonight, you know, I just want to appeal to the Scriptures and look at one example that just challenges us to be like Christ in a specific way. Okay? So please keep that person in your mind as we go through this lesson tonight. Because at the end of the lesson, you know, we're going to break up into our small groups and... Uh, I want you to specifically pray for that person within the group and plead with God to work, okay? So as we look to answer this question, how to pray for a loved one or a family member or a friend who's not a believer, we're going to look at one example, and that example is going to come from the book of Exodus, chapter 32. So if you have your Bibles, smartphone, whichever uh, you have, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus, where we're going to read a very familiar story called the Golden Calf Episode, okay? And so I'm going to read from verses 7 through 14, and um, we're going to do a little backstory before we dive into answering this question, okay? Uh, Exodus 32, verse 7 reads, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, "These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." And the Lord said to Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, 
and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this, this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have, that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord relented from his disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You know, in the story of Exodus, we have a record of God's people who are really on a faith journey with him. Uh, And that faith journey is rather remarkable. Stemming from the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, um, and now fast forward in Exodus 32, there's a lot of things that's, that's, that's taken place. That's taken place in the life of Israel and their faith journey. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, what happens? God's people, they're enslaved. They're in a situation that's out of their control. They're hopeless. There's no land that's promised for them. There's no chance for expansion. There's no opportunity to live, and etc. But something takes place in this book that will forever change the lives of the Israelites. God responds. You think about that. God responds. He made a promise to Genesis, or he made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. And you see in the very beginning of, uh, in the book of Exodus, that God responds. And what does he do? He reveals himself to Moses, which we'll later see will be very important when we look at Exodus 32. But God reveals himself to Moses, who later delivers a message to God's people. And man, what a message. But remember, for the Israelites, this is different. This is odd. Uh, they, they really don't know who this God is. All they really knew at this time were the false gods in Egypt. You know, the false gods who um, they would you sacrifice and worship to, like we saw here in 32, these golden calves. But God knew this. And also God knew that his people were, were in slavery. But he also delivers. He responds. God reveals himself to his people through the greatest rescue mission to ever take place in their history. He demonstrates his power, his control, his love, his protection, and his faithfulness to his people over their enemies in specific ways. And all Israel had to do was just step back and watch. Something powerful was taking place before them. What Israel saw over the course of the events in the book of Exodus or the plagues was an introduction to the greatest being in the universe, Yahweh, God Almighty, the one and only true God. And if the rescue mission wasn't enough for Israel to understand who this God was, God would do other things in front of them. He would reveal himself to his people in other specific ways. After they escaped from the Exodus... Israel, or uh, Pharaoh and his army, they're, they're following after them. And it seems like they're gaining close, and, and they're about to catch up and destroy these people. But what does God do? He separates the Red Sea. All of Pharaoh's armies and their people are trapped there. 
and God destroys him. And guess who's on the, at the end of the bank watching this take place? God's people. And while they're in the wilderness where it's hot, where, where um, you know, they're, they're unsafe, God provides shade. He provides, he provides warmth for them as they travel through the, 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 the desert. And he also feeds them along the way, sending, heaven from, sending bread from, heavens, from the heaven. God is specific in how he's revealing himself to his people. So that's without question that they should know who he is. They should know that this God is truly good. He has kept his word. And he's worth listening to. And this is important. Because later in the book of Exodus, God does something risky. Right? He decides, he decides to, take, to make things official with Israel. And he enters into a relationship with them. Right? We're told that uh, Israel is now kind of like his bride, his wife-to-be. And she will be his most treasured possession in all of the earth. These people will be very special to him. Right? Think of everything that's taken place. God has been the initiator, the provider, the responder. And he's revealed himself in a way to Israel that they should really just fall in love with him. You've done so much for me. Let me just show you how much I love you for it. Right? You would think that's the natural response. But then we get to Exodus 32. The story takes a, a dark turn. And Exodus 32 is, is actually during the honeymoon phase of their relationship, right? It's during the apex of their relationship where Moses is getting the law from God, which is their, their, relationship, is their, their covenant, um, uh, their, their, their uh, commitments to each other. And Israel's all jazzed up. They're ready for this. They are excited to take this relationship to the new level. But it's while they're on this honeymoon adventure that something terrible takes place. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and he's getting the law from God. But the people are freaking out. Uh, beginning of 32 tells that the people are, are they're anxious. They, they're, they're, um, they, they think something is happening to Moses. And it leads them down a path that's going to forever change how we view Israel forever. Um, instead of waiting for Moses to come down from his meeting from God, the people respond in making a golden calf. Now, let, let's stop there for a second and think about what's taking place, okay? God has clearly revealed himself to his people in a way that they know he's different, that, he's, that they know he's unique, that they know he's not like the other gods from Egypt. And so he should be worshipped differently, held at a level that's completely different from how they worship in Egypt. But they revert back to some old tendencies, and they respond by saying that this golden calf that we have made is actually our God that specifically brought us out from the land of Egypt. And that's interesting. Man, that's a big mistake, and we know this. We, this is the one sin that defines Israel, or at least sets a pattern for their relationship with God all throughout the Old Testament, right? So a couple observations about this sin. Fear drove this people to act irrationally. Can you relate? How oftentimes you respond in fear, and that turns out to be disobedience before God, right? We, we try and manipulate a situation. We turn to false gods. We turn to making golden calves. And we respond just like the Israelites. 
Number two, they were quick to replace the one true God with a counterfeit. These people have just experienced God at a level that I've never experienced him before. I've never seen a, you know, a huge, massive body of water separate and destroy people who are going to kill me. <laughs> no one's ever experienced that before in this room, right? But Israel has, has gone through unique situations in their relationship with God that should build some faith, that should build some credibility. But when things turn for uh, when, when, when bad things happen or they have some fear enter into their lives, their faith takes a hit. And they respond by replacing the one true God with a counterfeit. And we do that as well, right? Um, we, we, we put a lot of stock um, on things that distract us from God. And we turn to that really quick in our faith. It's a sad distraction, and it's a sad uh, truth about mankind and our state, right? Number three, um, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of them. And what that actually means is that while these people were in Egypt, they, they learned some things and some practices that were bad. How to worship false gods, um, competing worldviews and ideologies. And some of that affected them um, as they started this relationship with God. And many of us, we, we, we dabbled in things that we're not supposed to be dabbling in. And, and we've, we've, we've adopted some of the ideologies of this world and we're mixing it with some of the teachings of God and it's looking kind of blurry. It's, it's not good. It's not clear. But God has just explained his law to his people but they're still fighting against some of their temptations. And the fourth observation is this. Um, unreliable leadership can destroy a nation. It can destroy a community, and it can destroy a church. We're told in the episode right before, in a couple verses before, Aaron, Moses' brother, you know who Aaron is, this, the high priest, is there. He's supposed to be a leader for the, the Israelites, but man, he is partaking of the sins with the people and he is leading down, he's leading them specifically down a path for their destruction. This is tragic, man. There's terrible things are taking place in this episode. And it's something for us to caution ourselves with and, and pay attention to. But when we go back to the text, and starting in verse 7 and 8, we see God's response to what has just happened. God's not happy. Everything that the Israelites are doing goes against everything that they have been learning and everything they've agreed upon within this relationship with God. One author puts it this way, Israel is literally sleeping with other gods while she is on the honeymoon with Yahweh. Um, when he paints a picture that way, it gets pretty offensive, right? That one person that you love that has committed themselves to you, is cheating on you. <laughs> on your most important day of your life. After the wedding day, the, 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 I mean the honeymoon, uh, the, the, the apex of this relationship, the, that one person you love is cheating on you right then and there. And Israel is doing that. This is pure apostasy and disobedience. And like we said earlier, this one sinful act will set a pattern of defining how Israel will be in this relationship with God. Man, it's ugly. 
They're going to keep turning back to other gods. And while we're reading this story, we're just like, why don't you just listen to God and repent of your sins? They don't. In verses 9 and 10, the following two verses paint a picture of God's response. God is ticked. (laughs) He's angry. Verse 9 tells us, um, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And that's not a positive description of his people. And he tells Moses, leave me alone so basically I can destroy them. Utterly and completely destroy this people. And guess what, Moses? If you let me do this, I'll make a nation out of you. I'll start with you. God is so close to destroying Israel for their sin. And I think what we need to do in understanding this text is to feel that, to see that. This is important to keep in mind. This is not a figurative anger that we see here. God is livid. It's important for us to understand because God's not playing around in in this relationship, but Israel is. She's already toying around with other gods immediately. And God is so close to destroying Israel. And to be honest, God God would have been in the right in doing so. That contract that they signed or or, or those those um, covenants that they sign, it, it talks about if you break this covenant, that party who breaks it, they can be destroyed. Um, and so God would have been in the right in staying or, or, or in, in, uh, in staying within his word and destroying Israel, but he doesn't. He doesn't, right? It's a part of God's character and his holiness to destroy sin So it would make sense for for Moses to appeal to God, go for it, destroy those people. It it obviously makes sense, God. But he doesn't. doesn't. And that's what makes verse 11 to 14 interesting. Moses' response is so interesting. And what we're going to do is spend the rest of the time and, and look at how Moses responds on behalf of his brothers and sisters in the midst of what they're doing. I mean, they, they, they were performing sacrifices to a false god. And there's a lot of context in there that, that uh, it's bad. They're, they're doing despicable things right there before God at the, foot of the, at the foot of the mountain. And your imagination go wild. And so that's present. <laughs> And Moses has been told by God that these people are doing this. But instead of responding and telling God to destroy his people, he does something that should challenge us and our hearts and how to respond when we're praying for the one that, who is lost, a loved one, a family member, or a friend. Verse 11 tells us Moses implored. Uh, another way in understanding that word implore can mean he, he, he became weak, he became sick. Some scholars say that Moses here is fully identifying with the weight of the situation that is taking place. He knows that his brothers and sisters are partaking of some sinful activities and it's bad. It's it's so bad that God is in the right in destroying them. And Moses knows that. He knows that God can take away his brothers and sisters right now. So he's in a pickle. He recognizes the heinous sin that Israel has just committed, and his brother Aaron is there, and he's committing it with them. But notice what Moses also does. Moses knows who this God is. 
Whenever God first introduces himself to Moses in the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses also goes through this faith journey that's remarkable. God reveals himself to him in a way that we later know that Moses becomes one of the greatest heroes of the faith. One of the humblest mans, the law, the greatest prophet. And so Moses takes on this faith journey with God, and man, he develops this relationship with God in a way that is so deep and personal, and Moses knows God inside and out. He knows who he is. He knows his God is holy, but he also knows his God is righteous, he is kind, he is merciful. But again, he's in a very difficult position. Should he appeal to God's holiness and say, Lord, uh, you are in the right in destroying this people? Or should I plead for mercy? I know you are right to destroy this unrighteous people, God. But Moses says, I am begging you to not, or begging you not to. I'm begging you that you don't go through this. and I'm begging you to actually spare them. He appeals to God's fame, and he appeals to God's name later. And think about that. Moses identifies with the situation that's going on with his brothers and sisters who are acting like the Egyptians and therefore not like God's people. I mean, it's right for God to destroy them. But Moses sees the situation unfolding, and he acts. He's like... I got to do something. I got to respond. If I don't respond, then God's going to destroy these people. Something has to happen. Something has to take place. And so what does Moses do? He recognizes the situation, and he appeals to God and to his name and to who he is. He says, God, I know you're a holy God. I know you are holy, but I also know you are merciful. I know you, you're merciful. I know I've seen how you've acted with me. I've seen how you've acted with your people through the wilderness. I've seen how you've acted in the past. Uh, I've seen it, God. I've seen how merciful you are. And so in making a plea to God's character, Moses understands what he's doing. He's talking to a God who is also, who's not just holy, but he's also merciful. And appealing to that is, is the right thing to do. This is good. This, this, is, this shows Moses' understanding of who God is. That's different. That's unique. This brother is getting an understanding of God that is so personal. It paints a picture that we're later going to see resembles somebody else. Moses is exemplifying, he's exemplifying love. He's interceding for his brothers and sisters. He's demonstrating grace. And what he is actually doing is becoming like his father, a son pleading on behalf of, of mankind. But notice, how, but, but notice the work of Moses. Notice how he specifically intercedes for the people and he appeals to God to work in a way that's consistent with his character. Moses responds, or, or the Lord responds to Moses' intercession because of his appeal. Now, that, that, may, might, that might make some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? But what we're seeing from Moses in his specific request by God, before God, is that based on his relationship with the Lord, based on his understanding of who God is, and based upon his request to God, God hears every single thing that his dear brother is saying to him. 
And he responds. I mean, that, that, that is literally a miracle. God is in the right in destroying his people, but you have Moses right there standing before God and saying, Lord, don't do it. Don't destroy his people for, uh, for a list of reasons. One, they are your people. You have rescued this people from slavery. And for you to destroy them would show something to the Egyptians and basically taking a hit to your name. Don't do that, God. Do something better. Save them. Show mercy upon them so that hopefully they too will understand who you are at the level that I understand you. And as you go through the story, we, we see that God does relent from his wrath on his people. And man, what a picture of grace by God. That he hears his son's prayers, his pleadings, and he, and he responds. So when you see the character of Moses in action, does it remind you of somebody? Moses is demonstrating a power and a commitment to God that's, rival, that's only rivaled by the person of Jesus Christ. It is right to intercede for a lost member or a friend because in doing so, you are interceding, you are exemplifying a work of grace in your life that looks like the Son. Of, or that, that looks like the son. Remember, you were in the same position as Israel. And instead of God completely and utterly destroying you, what happens? A rescue mission takes place, and Jesus comes to the rescue. He comes to your rescue. A truth that I hope everybody here in this room feels and understands and believes. He makes an appeal before God, and what does God do? He goes beyond what is expected. Sin still, uh, sin still has to be dealt with, right? And so what does God do? He goes beyond what is expected, and he sends his son Jesus, who intercedes for us. But as we all know, he dies on our behalf so that you may live. And Moses gets that. It's the fuel behind his motivation in making this appeal before God. Lord, I know you're holy, and I know you're righteous, but I know you're merciful. You've been merciful to me. I am a sinner. When you first revealed yourself to me, I too should have been destroyed. I should have been destroyed. I should not have even had the opportunity to have this relationship with you. I should not even have this opportunity to understand you as a merciful God. But I have. I've seen how you work. I've seen how you've, you've demonstrated your love. I've seen how you demonstrate your grace multiple times. And man, it is so attractive. It is so good. And God, it makes you so different from all the other gods. You are a covenantal God. Stick to your promises. Don't destroy his people on behalf of your glory. And Moses' motivation in interceding for his people comes from this understanding of who God is. He's passionate for his glory. He's passionate in seeing that this people, though they don't deserve it, they, they can experience God's grace at a level that can change their lives. And that may be the same appeal that we need to make for our brothers and sisters who don't know Christ right now. So how do we respond? How do we respond or pray for someone who is a family member or a friend who is lost? A couple things. It's right for you to specifically go before God on their behalf because Christ has done so for you. That person who you have in mind, 
God has given that to you, and they need to be in your prayer request. You need to focus on this one person and call them out by name and plead before God and ask him to be merciful on their life. If you believe that the gospel is good and you believe that God is a kind God and a merciful God and you don't want to see this person to suffer and go in destruction, then you plead on behalf of them. Ask God to forgive them of their sins and plead with God to save their souls. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Go to God before uh, go to God with your requests and your needs and specifically pray for this individual and ask him to work in their life. Who's that one person that God has for you? Who is he? Identify that person and plead on their behalf for them to be saved. Number two, fearlessly turn to God on behalf of this person. If you are in Christ, you don't have to fear the judgment. You can go boldly before God with your requests and your needs in that person's name and believe that God's going to answer your request, man. God can demonstrate his power and control on their lives and hopefully save them, hopefully change them. I can change you. And call on God to send someone to speak to that person. Pray that God would send a missionary, a pastor, a teacher, a Christian witness to minister to this person because we're told in the book of Romans that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are a Christian here tonight, that verse applies to you. If you've called on the name of the Lord, you've heard the gospel and you've responded, man, you've been saved. Paul later tells us, how then will they call on him in in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we need to pray for opportunities for people to share the gospel with this person. Specific people, a pastor, a preacher, uh, a missionary, a teacher, somebody to, intera- uh, to interact with this person. We're promised by God that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. And so we take that promise and we bank on it and we believe it. I'm praying that God will change Cody's life, man. He can. God can change this guy's life who has no interest in God. And I need your help in praying for him. I need your help in praying for this guy because he's a lost soul. He's heading into destruction. And man, who else is going to intercede for him? It's my job. It's my joy. It's my joy and it's my honor. And man, I love this guy. I love this guy. We need to intercede for these people. Right? The message and the messenger of the gospel must go forth. And so we pray for that. We pray for specific opportunities for the loved one to be exposed by the gospel. That is so important. And the last thing, we pray that God would remove the evil one's influence in their life. They're operating under the things that they know, that they've learned from this thing of the world, the kingdom of darkness. Several, uh, there are several things that is going on in this person's life. And one of them for sure is Satan has a grasp on their heart and is very dark. And for anyone who's been in Christ, that was a position you've been in before. So pray that God would use the gospel to soften their heart and reveal to them the ways of God so that they can live. Unbelievers are blinded by Satan. And we need to plead before God to work in a way that the evil one's powers will will lessen or, or will be defeated by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that this person will no longer be blinded, but they'll hear and see the gospel and respond. 
And we need to pray that God would grant that individual genuine repentance. A heart that's changed, uh, a heart uh, that, that's changed from stone into flesh. Uh, a heart that's, that's focused on the desires of God, not the things of his world. That kind of repentance uh, man, is kingdom is kingdom-like. And if you're in Christ, you've experienced that as well. And so the challenge is for us to be intercessors like Moses. Because in doing so, we understand the gospel. We make the same appeal before God. And we're pleading with him, Lord, work. Work on behalf of your glory and save this individual who doesn't know you. That is a righteous thing to do. Paul demonstrates the exact same thing. And we later see we, and later we even see the Son of God do the same thing on your behalf, interceding for you so that you may know him and have life and have life abundantly. And so as you're praying for your family member, your friend, whoever it is, uh, that is a righteous thing to do. But identify that person and keep praying for them specifically. Don't, don't lose hope. Right? We've heard of stories of how uh, pastors have been praying for a family member for decades, and they finally come to faith. Those stories are real, man. They're, they're real, and they're evident, and they are encouraging for our faith. And so for that loved one who is an unbeliever, do you really love them? Do you really, really love them in a way that looks like Christ and that you want to point them to the gospel? So I challenge you, uh, as we take the next 10 minutes and uh, take some time in praying for this, our, our, our loved ones. Think about where they are. They don't know Christ, which means they are destined for destruction. <laughs> That's a bleak place. That's a bad place to be in. And so our prayer meetings, they need to be focused and interceding for these people to hear the gospel because it's your responsibility. It is our responsibility to carry forth this word to them and intercede for them. As a holy calling from God. And so um, let's take the next 10 minutes and break up into small groups and pray for that one individual that God has on your heart. Call them out by name and pray for them. Pray for specific things. Pray for a specific person to interact with them. Pray for boldness so that you can share with them. And pray that Satan would no longer have a stronghold on their life. That's real, guys. Even when is, he is deceptive and he needs to be defeated. And so when time comes to a close, I'll, I'll just close this in prayer. But let's go ahead and just break up into small groups uh, within where you guys are. And man, let's intercede for our friends who are lost and name them. Identify who they are. And let's go before the Lord asking him to save them.